title of my session is very interesting, The Sufficiency of the Local Church. In one sense, that, that feels really wrong to refer to the bride of Christ as sufficient. I mean, if you were today on your way home to stop and buy some flowers and go home through the door of your house and go up to your wife and hand her those flowers and say, honey, baby, I really believe you're sufficient. She's probably going to kick you in the shins and shove those roses right up your nose. But we're going to talk about the sufficiency of the local church for us. And, and going back to something that Steve said in the, in the Q&A up here, it is amazing to me just to sit here knowing what I'm about to bring to you, brothers, and see how there's just an overlap. There's a building of, of the messages, even here today, that, that we as the speakers didn't plan. Um, you're about to hear some of the same things, uh, uh, me touch upon some of the same things, going back to Isaac's message this morning. And, and Paul's message, and certainly Sean's message in this last session. But we want to talk about the sufficiency of the local church. And if we're going to talk about the sufficiency of the local church, we have to understand that the church is only sufficient if it is a true church. If it is a true church. And, and my favorite definition of, of what really defines a local church is, is in the Belgic Confession. You know, you go back a little bit in history, Article 29 of the Belgic Confession puts it this way. It says, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. And it practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. Now we might ask at that point, what, what does that speak of or how does that direct us when we talk about unhealthy or, or immature churches? Well, a church can be unhealthy or immature and still be a church, right? I mean, the, the two letters written to Corinth show us this. Talk about an amazingly unhealthy church, a church that was rejecting uh, uh, apostolic authority, uh, a church that had such impurity, sexual impurity in it, uh, a church that had to be directed to do church discipline, just, just so many different dynamics. We talk about the church at Galatia, and they were literally struggling with a, a, a damnable heresy. Of, of putting works back in salvation. We think of just the churches that, that the Lord spoke to in the book of Revelation and the kind of things they were struggling with. But not once did the writers of Scripture ever say they weren't churches. But what we are going to talk about today is how the local church is sufficient. And so well, I say it's necessary for us to understand what a true church is because we don't want to say that our Bible study meeting at Starbucks is sufficient. It's not because that's not the church. You know, the men's prayer group that I may have at my workplace on Friday morning is not sufficient because it's not a church. It's a great gathering. There's great spiritual benefit there, but it's not a church. A church is marked by these things. And so if that is a true church, then what do we mean when we say that the church is sufficient? It means that the church is fully capable of doing all the work God gives it to do. That's what we mean when we say the local church is sufficient. The local church is fully capable of doing all the work God gives it to do. And, and we do want to make a distinction between sufficiency and, and being all sufficient. 
Okay? Even when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, Scripture is not designed to be all-sufficient. You know, it's not like you can turn to the pages of Scripture and find out the name of the girl you're supposed to marry. It doesn't give us all information. The Bible is sufficient for everything we need for faith and, 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 and church and spiritual life. Whereas if we talk about Christ, Christ is all-sufficient in every way because he is God. And indeed, when we talk about the sufficiency of the church, it's grounded in those very doctrines. The local church is sufficient because the word of God is sufficient. The local church is sufficient because Christ is all-sufficient, and it's his church. And the local church is sufficient because God is absolutely and completely sovereign over all things. Not a sparrow lights to the ground apart from our heavenly Father. There is not a maverick molecule in the entire universe. There is not a single centimeter or millimeter of real estate that that exists over which God does not proclaim mine. And that has significant implications when we talk about the local church. Now, as we, as we think about those realities, the sufficiency of Scripture, the sufficiency of Christ, the sovereignty of God, we then build into this idea of what Scripture tells us about the church, and we go to what Scripture tells us. We go to John chapter 10, and in John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, we understand from that that Christ is the one who gathers his church, right? Jesus says there, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is the one who draws men and women, boys and girls to himself. Jesus is the one who establishes the true church It is in his presence that we will worship him one day in the consummation as the universal church, but it is Christ who even now gathers the local church. A second thing we see is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. We see there that Christ is the head of his church. He is the one who leads and rules his people. Paul writes there, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. And so the church is his, he has gathered it, and he is the one who ultimately leads and governs and rules the church. Even when we talk about what we do as church leadership and specifically as pastors, we understand that we are under shepherds, that we ourselves serve under the headship of Christ. Well, then we also go to 1 Peter chapter 2. So John 10, Colossians 1, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. And there we have the apostle Peter writing. And he says, as you come to him, A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Jesus Christ is that foundation stone, that cornerstone on which the true church is built. It can have no other foundation and still be called a church. It is Christ alone. And Christ alone is that one who will, he will either be that foundation for those who, is true, who are truly his, or he will be that stone of stumbling and that rock of offense that crushes those who are not his. But as his people, we are given this purpose. We are this royal priesthood, this holy nation, who are called to proclaim his excellencies, who are called to tell the very truth of the gospel. This is how the Lord of the universe has saved sinners like us. We, apart from him, have no hope. We, apart from him, are only given to self, given to our own depravity. It is Jesus Christ who has come to set us free from sin and death. It is Jesus Christ who has come to bring us out of the darkness and into the light. We are called as his people to proclaim him. And so those are but three different passages that, that point to what our identity is and further bring us to this reality that Jesus Christ, through his church, through his local church, is sufficient. And that's a key thing I want us to understand. The local church is sufficient because it is Christ's church. It is Christ's body. Because he gathers us, because he leads us and rules over us, because he is our foundation and the one who sets us to the purpose he has given us, the local church is sufficient. So let me go back to the definition. That means the church is fully capable of doing the work that God gives it to do. Now, what is the church to do? You know, we live in a day and age where there are books, all kinds of books being written about what the church's mission is, how we are to be missional, you know, what are, what are the purposes of the church, and, and on and on and on. I, I really prefer to keep it very simple and very scriptural, and I think Wayne Grudem honestly does this best, going all the way back to his systematic theology. The purposes of the church are just threefold. Ministry to God and worship. We exist to worship the Lord forever. And even going back to the writings of John Piper and let the nations be glad. Missions exist because worship does not. One day evangelism and missions won't exist anymore. Worship will go on for eternity. And so ministry to God, which is worship. Second purpose of the church is ministry to believers in nurture. This is what the church is to be. We, every church is a gathering of saved sinners. Every church is a gathering of sinners who are in a process of sanctification. And we're to disciple and we're to nurture. And part of that nurturing is correcting. Part of that nurturing is encouraging. Part of that nurturing is, is, is building one another up in the body of Christ under the headship of Christ. And then the third is a ministry to the world. 
Ministry to God worship, ministry to believers nurture, and ministry to the world, which is evangelism and mercy. As going back to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as, as we go forth in evangelism, <clears throat> we are to be instruments of mercy. All around us exists a world that is broken in sin. You know, we, we talk about what's going on in, in nations. We talk about what's going on in our nation and, and the cultural moral degradation we see. We talk what's going around uh, us in, in just the immediate vicinity of our own churches. All of those issues go back to human sin and the fact that we live in a fallen world. And so we demonstrate the mercy of Christ even as we go forth proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Now, these three must be kept in balance if we give emphasis of one over the other, then things get wonky and how the church is, is to be the church. If we're so wrapped up in, in being, you know, the, the, the worship, which is a wonderful thing, certainly we're called to glorify God and all that, but if we neglect evangelism, missions, we, we very quickly wither. So they must be kept in balance. But we are to understand that if your church is a church, it can do all these things. Some of you in here are from churches of, of hundreds. I don't know, for perhaps some of you in churches are over a thousand. Some of you are here from churches that are, that are fewer than a hundred. I want us to understand that the local church is sufficient. Every church, regardless of size, if it is a true church, is capable of fulfilling these purposes. Every single one. It will look different from church to church. We know that God calls and, and gathers different people to himself in different local churches. There are churches that will be strong in, you know, in the area of, of ministry to perhaps college students, young people. There'll be another church that has an incredible ministry in, in foster care and adoption. Uh, there may be another church that, that is really great at, at raising up teachers and preachers. There may be another church that, that does incredible work in mercy ministry, spreading the gospel by ministering to the homeless. And so churches can have, based on who Christ has sovereignly gathered, different churches can have different personalities, can have different strengths and different weaknesses, different emphases. But every church, if it's truly a church, is sufficient to do what God has called us to do, to fulfill these purposes. I would also remind us, though, it does not mean that it will not take hard labor. You know, use the illustration of a farmer. You have a farmer's wife. They've got, let's say, four or five children. This farmer can be given several acres of land, and those acres of land are sufficient to feed that farmer and his family and for them to even make a good living off of it. But just because that land is sufficient to feed that farmer and his family and for them to make a living from it doesn't mean it's not also going to take some hard work, right? It will take faith, Hard work to cultivate. He will have to put his heart into the, the labor that is there for, for him to do. He has a part in making that happen. Even though God is going to be the one who sends the rain, God is the one who gives the farmer himself the strength. God is the one who supplied the, the raw materials. He must apply himself. And brothers, the same is true for us as leaders in the church. The local church is sufficient. But we are called to labor. Now, there are numerous implications of this doctrine of the sufficiency of the church, but I'm going to lead us now 
to talking about some things that are particular to those of us who are gathered here today. I could talk about all different implications about the doctrine of the sufficiency of the local church, but I want to speak to us as as pastors and church leaders particularly about what does the sufficiency of the local church mean for us. First of all, your church, your church is a sufficient arena for the exercise of your calling. Your church is a sufficient arena for the exercise of your calling. And that's important for us to understand because, honestly, one of the ways that Satan is very quietly and very secretly at work in us as church leaders is he really likes us to look around and compare our ministries and our churches to other ministries and other churches. His goal there is to make us discontent. And so often we find ourselves as pastors either outright longing for greener pastures, greater places to minister, better situations, or we find ourselves just secretly coveting what other churches have. Oh man, I I would love it if I could have an elder body like that church over there. Or, you know, I've got two elders and... You know, we're just, we're just still the beginning. We're not really strong. I, I, that guy has nine elders. I wish I had that. Or, you know, just any number of things. I, I, man, that is such a vibrant youth and children's ministry over there. Why, why can't we build something like that? Lord, you know, why? Any number of things can come to mind. This is what we need to understand, brothers. God has sovereignly led you to the particular place that you are to serve to a particular purpose he has for you and to a particular purpose he has for that congregation. God has sovereignly led you to this particular place where you are to serve because he has a particular purpose for you and a particular purpose for that congregation. And you may find yourself at any one of a number of different places in the timeline of that church. You may have the privilege of being a planting pastor, of going and and starting a new work and seeing that get off the ground and and seeing God do wonderful works of provision and wonderful works of, of, of just winning souls to Christ and seeing them baptized and seeing the church established. You may be called to to a work that that has already begun. It's a church that's already, you know, 50, 60, 70, 100 years old. And and God brings you there to continue to to minister the word of Christ, to faithfully lead those people before the throne, to lead them in the mission of the church. And you know what? Some of us may be led to that church that's dying. You may be called of God to a church where you, by God's sovereign purpose, are to be the pastor that locks the doors for the last time. And that doesn't mean failure. Be faithful in what God has called you to do. Preach the word, lead the people, undertake the work of ministry. But that may be his sovereign purpose. We may be any any one of a number of places along the lifespan of a church. But going back to something that has already been said... Be faithful to your calling and leave the results to God. I'm going to paraphrase this, but it's a quote I know that many of us have heard before, you know, especially when we talk about comparing ourselves to other churches and wishing we had what other churches had or what other brothers had. Listen, there is going to come a day of judgment where we 
as, as pastors, have to give an account to a holy God for every single soul that was entrusted to our ministry. And we may realize then that we should have longed for a smaller congregation rather than a larger one when we have to give an account to a holy God. Your church is a sufficient arena for the exercise of your calling. Don't don't wish that away. Don't pray that away. Don't let that spirit of, of covetousness take root in your heart as you as you compare yourself to what God is doing, right? Because the God who's working in that other true church is the same God that's working in your church. And he means for it to be different, and he means for it to look different. Secondly, your church is a sufficient arena for the practice of your shepherding. Your church is a sufficient arena for the practice of your shepherding. The longer I've been in ministry, the more I am convinced that shepherding is the key virtue of a pastor. We, we put a lot of emphasis on, we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, being a pastor to make decisions, great administrator, you know, going back to what Sean said a, a few moments ago on leadership. We put a lot of emphasis on, on this giftedness in preaching and teaching and power in the pulpit, and, and those are good things. But brothers, I really think we should really look at it a bit differently. I think it's better for us to understand that our gifts of leadership or preaching and teaching, they are subsumed under this role of shepherd. They are the means by which we shepherd God's people. And when I look at churches that even do have functioning elder bodies that are, that are struggling, that are having difficulty, that are having, you know, they have leadership that's getting at loggerheads or, or they have shepherds that, that aren't really sure what to, what to do and, and what they're called to do. And so some shepherds just divert to being a rubber stamp for whatever the senior pastor wants to do. Or some shepherds revert to saying, well, we are the personnel committee for the senior pastor, you know, these types of things. When you look at all the different abuses that can come out of this, 95% of the time, the struggles come from the fact that these men simply are not or they don't know how to shepherd. And if we want to know how to shepherd, brothers, we look at the one true shepherd of the church. We look to Christ. We see Christ as a man who, who even when people were in rank sin, he was tender towards them. You know, Jesus, Jesus didn't rail against the prostitutes and the tax gatherers and the drunkards. He railed against the religious leaders who, who were self-righteous and thought they had everything all sorted out. We want to teach one another to shepherd. And when you talk about a biblically functioning elder body, it's not just about a body of men called of God set apart to shepherd the congregation. We've got to understand what it is to shepherd one another on the elder body. How to care for one another's souls. How do we get along? How do we love one another? Or how are we compassionate towards one another when we disagree with one another? How do we defer to one another in humility? How do I wash the feet, maybe literally, but more metaphorically, how do I wash the feet of those God who is entrusted to my care? We want to shepherd. And we want to go back to and always realize that Christ is our example in that. And as we shepherd, if we're truly shepherds, we're going to know our sheep. 
Listen, a true shepherd, a true pastor is not merely a pulpiteer. A true shepherd knows his people. I, I had the privilege, some of you might have heard of Tom Hicks. He's a pastor down in Louisiana now. He was my pastor of discipleship, served alongside me for a decade. Love that brother. I miss him. And uh, I learned this from him. You know, every time we as pastors step behind the pulpit, we do so with two books. First is the book of Scripture. But secondly is the book of the human soul. Because our responsibility is to bring that eternal, sufficient, holy word of God to our sheep. And to bring it to them rightly and to bring it to them properly, we have to know them. We cannot live as men who are apart from the sheepfold. We cannot live as men who, break, who erect barriers between ourselves and those we are called to shepherd. And especially, our polity should reflect the fact that we are not merely pastors and leaders of the church, we are members of the church as well. So be involved in your people's lives and don't, don't despise the people that God has given you. Even the thorns in the flesh, going back to what Sean said, and again, you know, there's all kinds of ink that's been spilled about what is Paul's thorn in the flesh? Is it actual a fleshly you know, ailment? Is, is it a church? Is it a group of people? The fact of the matter is, a lot of times we have thorns in the flesh sitting in our pews, sitting in the, in the, in the audience before us on a Sunday morning. Your God is sovereign, though. Do you think they would have even gotten in the door if your heavenly Father had not allowed it and ordained it? You know, at my first church, I, I, I went into ministry in, in 1994. Like I said, I'm coming up on my 30-year anniversary. I, I took my first pastorate when I was 27 years old, senior pastor at 27 years old. I was way too young. And I had a deacon in my first church that, I, you know, I don't want to presuppose, I want to leave it to the Lord, but the fruit of his life was this was just an unregenerate contrary man. I don't know, I don't, I don't pronounce that as if the Lord, only Lord knows the heart. But you want to talk about a person being a thorn in the flesh, he was it. And I spent a lot of time just praying, Lord, take him, please. <laughs> At least away from the church to the grave, even better. But Lord, please, you know, just those kind of imprecatory prayers. Because every time I turned around, he was there as a barrier to what I felt God was leading to us to in ministry. And, and it took leaving that church and being called to my church where I've been at now, in retrospect, it, it took me a while to realize that he was there for a reason. Relating to him revealed the sins of my flesh that I needed to carry before the Lord and confess and lay down. And yet I was so wrapped up in just coming against him. And that really takes me to the third thing that I want us to understand. This, this leads directly into that. Your church is a sufficient arena for the growth of your sanctification. Your local church is a sufficient arena for your growth and sanctification. Every one of us needs accountability. And every one of us needs growth. 
So many times we, we see ourselves, and this is correct, but it's not the whole truth. We see ourselves, okay, I am here as a pastor, I'm here as a leader, I'm here to teach and to preach and to shepherd and, and to love and to lead and do all these different things. I am to be a means by which God is sanctifying his sheep. That is true. But what we don't always understand, what we often miss, is that our sheep are also a means of God sanctifying us. They're God's means of sanctifying us. Because guess what? You need the gospel every bit as much as the weakest member of your church. You need Christ every bit as much as the weakest member of your church. God is working for your sanctification through all these things. And it is just as Sean just said, this is just such the beauty of the overlap of the sovereignty of God in our messages. God's power is perfected in weakness. That problem deacon I had in my first church, who I labeled as a thorn in the flesh and I was pleading for God to remove, he was there to keep me from being conceited as a young man. And I was too stupid to recognize it at the time. And so when, when the road gets hard, remember, God is sovereign. When, 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 when it feels like, like the, the demands of ministry and the, and the church are, are overwhelming, it's the chisel of God working on you. And you may, you may need to change some things. It's the Lord leading you. You may need to reevaluate some things. You may need to confess some things. But don't despise God's chisel. It was Charles Spurgeon who said it, and I'm sure you've heard this before. Charles Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that dashes me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that dashes me against the rock of ages. Pray. This even goes back to Isaac's message this morning. When you find yourself in that place, when, when the road of sanctification is hard, pray. Pray believing that God may remove that hardship, but also pray knowing that God may intensify that hardship. That's a hard truth, isn't it? Pray believing that God will remove that hardship, but pray knowing that God may also intensify that hardship. But when he does so, he's doing it for your good and his glory in all things. That is how he's using your church for you. And I would give us another dynamic of this. God not only uses our hardships for our sanctification and our good, God uses our successes and our triumphs as a means of sanctification too. Because you know what? As much as hardship will squeeze you and cause what is in your heart to come out, guess what? Success and triumph will also reveal what's really in your heart. That triumph and that success makes it real easy for that pride to come to the surface. Makes it real easy to see that all along I've been thinking it's me. Right? So even the successes and triumphs that you experience in ministry, it's important that we weigh and see what effect is those, are those having on my heart as well. 
don't despise the work of God that, that he is doing through his local church. Right? Tim Keller, gone on to be with the Lord now, but I, keep, I go back to the so often in ministry. Tim Keller once said, he's talking about those times of hardship, right? He said, if you knew everything that God knows, you would pray for the exact same circumstances that you are experiencing right now. If you knew everything that God knows, you would pray for the exact circumstances you are in right now. Take heart. God is good. God is so good. God is patient. I mean, just, just if y'all knew me, you know, Alistair Begg heard him say this years ago. He said, you know, if I, if I really knew y'all and knew what was in your heart, I wouldn't waste my time preaching to you. <laughs> and if y'all really knew me and knew what was in my heart, you wouldn't waste your time listening to me. Every one of us is a mess. They're just different degrees of mess. But let us not forget, brothers, that God is at work. He is sovereign. He is good. And the church that he's given you, the people that he's gathered, the people that are such a blessing and an encouragement to you, and the people that annoy you to no end, those high-maintenance people that no matter how much you seem to give and give and give, they just keep coming back, and, and, and they never seem to, they always want to come back and ask, but they never seem to do what you tell them. You know, those high-maintenance people, all the different people that you have gathered in your body are there by God's sovereign work. He has brought you together with them. He has brought you all together because he is doing a work in all of us, in all of you, through one another. The local church is sufficient. Let's pray. God, you're, you're so good. You're so good, Father. And we just confess, Lord, how, how short-sighted we can become, how clouded our vision can become. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are enough. We thank you that your church is enough. Help us to be men marked by a godly contentment. Knowing, Lord, that it is you who directs it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.